Welcome to East Hills Alliance Church. We are everyday people following Jesus every day. Amen. Thank you, worship team. Uh, that song, I actually, I think I first heard it maybe a year and a half ago, maybe only six months ago. It's been kind of a long year. Anyway, something like that. It uh, was not a song, honestly, that I, I, it had to grow on me. The song had to grow on me, and grow on me uh, definitely has, to the point that I uh, love that uh, I got to sing it this morning uh, and got to sing it last night. Uh, a few dozen of us singing that and other songs gathered around a sizable campfire, uh, praising God together and sharing stories of what God is doing in our lives, of of his faithfulness, of his grace, of his love. And part of the beauty of God's faithfulness and his grace and his love is that those things are gifts. We don't have to earn them. Part of the hard part of God's faithfulness and grace and love is that those things are gifts and we can't earn them. They give us no opportunity to prove ourselves. There's, there's nobody to outrace towards God's grace. There, there is no way uh, to justify ourselves into them, to earn them in some way, uh, to impress others, to impress God. These things are just given. They're just given. And all we're asked to do is be vulnerable enough to receive them. To try and earn a gift, really, is to reject that gift until we feel worthy of receiving it. If, if somebody you love or somebody who loves you brought you a gift and and you trust them to be a good gift, gift giver, so you know something good is in it, and, and it's all wrapped up, all purdy, because some of you can make presents wrapped up, all purdy. Uh, my kids know better than to trust me with wrapping paper. It gets real bad real fast. Anyway, some of you make very beautiful presents. So this person's made a beautiful present. You know that something in that box is going to be amazing. And you go, oh, yeah, actually, I don't deserve this. So I'm going to set it over here, and I'll come back to it when I feel like I deserve it. What you have done is you have rejected the gift that was just brought to you. To turn down God's gift of love is essentially to tell him that we know what he should do with his love better than he does. One day, some parents brought their children to Jesus they had heard about this traveling preacher who's uh, saying some provocative things and, and they're hearing stories of uh, miracle feedings and, and healings and they just want their children to be blessed by this ra rising rabbi, Jesus. And Jesus's friends and students, his, his disciples, uh, are just super annoyed with all the kids. Like, what, what, what are you doing? Can't, can't you tell we have serious things going on go away. They were annoyed. Jesus was not. We're going to dive into scripture at that point. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 19. 
Uh, and uh, I'm just going to warn you, there's going to be a lot of scripture today. Uh, and so we will have it up on the screen behind me like we always do, because we try to make that easy and convenient for you. But... With as much as we're going through today, I would encourage you to get out a Bible if you have one available to you uh, on your phone. Maybe you brought it. Maybe it's uh, under one of the chairs in front of you. Again, it's on the screen, but you're encouraged to pull it out. You are encouraged, for the record, to bring your own Bible, phone, paper, whatever, uh, highlight it, mark it up with whatever it is that God may be saying to you uh, in those moments. And... uh, I am amazed by how often the things that God is saying to you in those moments through scripture have nothing to do with the words that are coming out of my mouth. I love that. So uh, bring a Bible, highlight it, mark it, whatever it may be. If you don't have a Bible, uh, there's one in the chair pocket uh, or chair under the chair, that thing, the Bible rack in front of you. Feel free to take that one. If you know somebody who needs a Bible, you're like, man, I don't know how I'm going to get them a Bible. Well, now you do. Take one of those. Uh, we don't need to hoard Bibles. They're, they're for people. So uh, anyway, those are available to you. With all of that laid out ahead of time, uh, let's, let's dive in. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 19, starting in verse 13. One day, some parents brought their children to Jesus so he could lay his hands on them and pray for them. But the disciples scolded the parents for bothering him. But Jesus said, let the children come to me. Don't stop them. For the kingdom of heaven belongs to those who are like these children. And he placed his hands on their heads and blessed them before he left. Many a sermon, uh, many a debate on this little tiny passage what does it mean uh, when, when Jesus says that those who are like these children? What exactly is it about the children that we are supposed to emulate? I believe Matthew, who was one of those disciples following Jesus and was probably, we must assume from his account, one of the people who was annoyed with the kids and trying to get them to go away. Uh, he has put together these stories of Jesus's teaching and ministry and life, and he's put them together in an order on purpose. And I think he, at least for him, answers this mystery of what does Jesus mean must be like the children. I I think the story he puts next is really intentional and helps answer uh, this question. So continuing in verse uh, 16 with uh, a young man who also approaches Jesus like the parents and children. Someone came to Jesus with this question. Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life. I've heard about this eternal life thing. I want it. How do I earn it? Jesus replied, why ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. But to answer your question, if you want to receive eternal life, keep the commandments. Which ones? The man asked. And Jesus replied, You must not murder, you must not commit adultery, you must not steal, you must not testify falsely. Honor your father and mother, love your neighbor as yourself. I've obeyed all those commandments, the young man replied. What else must I do? Jesus told him, if you want to be perfect, go and sell your possessions and give the money to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. But when the young man heard this, he went away sad, for he had many possessions. Then Jesus said to his disciples, I tell you the truth, 
It is very hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. I'll say it again. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. That's supposed to be funny. Jesus is making a joke. Picture camel, eye of the needle. It's not going to work. Okay. It sort of gets lost in translation, but it's a joke. He's pointing out the ridiculousness uh, of this idea. Well, well, what idea? So uh, nowhere in here uh, did he say, or am I going to say, that following all those commandments is bad. That all makes sense. Follow the things God told you to do. Uh, sell stuff, give the money to the poor. Sounds great. I don't believe that this passage and this account, and Jesus is teaching here, is about possessions, about having stuff. There are many accounts in scripture, uh, Old Testament and New Testament, in the gospels and Jesus's ministry uh, and in the early church of people who had wealth and they were not asked to sell it all. We hear about people using their wealth to support the ministry of Jesus, to support the early church movement. This doesn't line up with the, when we look at it all in the whole of scripture, it doesn't look like this is a universal command that we all sell all of our stuff. I don't think this is about possessions. I think it's about dependence. Because the young man here wants to earn this thing. He wants to depend on his own ability. He wants to depend on his own holiness for the assurance that he'll have eternal life. I've done all these things. He wants to depend in this life on his riches and his wealth and his comfort. And so the idea of selling it all makes him go away sad. And Jesus is inviting him to get rid of all the things that he's depending on. And then come, he says, and depend on me. Dependence is the opposite of earning. Dependence is the opposite of earning it. Like children who haven't er earned anything yet, Jesus calls us to himself. Come like these children. <laughs> they haven't earned anything. They're just showing up for Jesus. The rich young man wants to prove himself, to earn it, to receive eternal life as a reward for his goodness, not as a gift of God's goodness. When, when we are focused on earning it, we are not putting ourselves in a position of dependence, of allowing others to, to lead and guide us, and in this case of allowing Jesus to lead and guide us. And our riches have a way of blinding us from our dependence. And this is where we get a little bit uncomfortable with this story. Uh, some of us have more wealth than others, but if you live in this country with a roof over your head, uh, you are among the richest in the world. Our riches, whatever they may be, can blind us from our dependence because we can learn to depend on our stuff, sure. We don't have to pray for our daily bread because we can buy it. We don't have to pray for our security because we can lock the door. We don't have to pray for uh, companionship 
because we have family and friends. Our riches have a way of blinding us from our dependence. And Jesus is asking this young man to remove the blinders and step into the life that Jesus is calling him to. And so he makes this joke about camel trying to thread the eye of the needle and how hard it is for the rich to get into heaven. And Jesus' disciples, who most of whom at least, um, perhaps Matthew excluded, uh, most of whom were not at all wealthy before they came to Jesus and certainly not while they're following him around. And they hear this and we might expect them to go, yeah, that's right. You tell those rich people. They're floored, mind blown. Uh, Verse 25 of Matthew 19. The disciples were astounded. Then who in the world can be saved? They asked. If not the rich, if not those blessed on the earth, then who could possibly be blessed enough to get into heaven. And Jesus doesn't launch into a sermon about grace and equality or, or God's compassion for the poor and the outcast just yet. Instead, he says in verse 26, Jesus looked at them intently and said, humanly speaking, it is impossible. But with God, everything is possible. Now, out of context, and painted on eye black and whatever else it gets tattooed on, this verse has led to all kinds of terrible theology. It's important to look at what is Jesus talking about. Because we, we want to use this for more of the wealth and comfort stuff. Like, okay, I, I, I don't know how I'm going to find a parking spot, but with God, all things are possible. So Jesus is going to find me one. And then if he finds you one, that's amazing. Praise God. That's great. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. What's he talking about? He's talking about eternal life. He's talking about salvation. Humanly speaking, it is impossible. But with God, everything is possible. Jesus is saying that humans cannot save themselves, but God can save the poorest, most unimpressive, most sinful person. That no one is outside the reach and range of God's gifts of grace and love. Now, Jesus and this rich young man are both Jewish. They're both men of Israel. They're both very familiar with these commandments that they're discussing. Because these commandments were given to the nation of Israel, the people of Israel, centuries earlier. And God gave these commandments as part of a whole set of laws to the nation of Israel because they were a brand new nation. God is setting them up as a brand new nation in a promised land, and they needed laws for their new nation. So God says, here they are. And that's a story that all of Jesus's Jewish contemporaries, the men and women listening uh, to him talk and listening to this interaction with the rich young man, they would all know this story, and and maybe you do too. I'm not going to go back and read the story, but I do want to summarize it, just so that we're all on the same page. And whether this is your first time hearing this story or your thousandth time hearing this story, I would like you to focus on one particular question. 
When, in this story, does God give the people the law for them to live up to? Okay? So here's the story. We'll pick it up with the uh, people of Israel having grown into a large number of people, but there are a large number of people in the land of Egypt. And the Egyptian people are freaked out by how big this group is getting, and so uh, they decide to enslave them. We're not told a lot of details about how that worked, but that's how that worked. And then they continued to grow until the point that the Egyptian people were worried about an uprising, which frankly makes a ton of sense. If they outnumber you, that gets scarier. And so the Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, uh, puts out an edict that uh, the Israelite boys, uh, when they're born, need to die. I don't know how that was going to work for him long-term in holding on to slave numbers, but that was the plan, short-term at least. Uh, Kill the baby boys. And so we hear about one particular young mom uh, who takes uh, her, her baby boy and, and she tries to hide him, and he grows to a point where she can't hide him anymore, and so she puts him uh, in, in a basket, and she tries to just float him down the river, hoping that at least this isn't certain death, like it would be if somebody found him. So maybe by some miracle, God will take care of him, and by some miracle, he does. This baby boy floats up actually to the edge of Pharaoh's property, and he is picked up out of the water by Pharaoh's daughter, and he is named Moses. And Moses is brought into the palace, and he is raised as a prince. And we have to imagine a lot of what that upbringing would look like, because we aren't told. But certainly, Moses, in some way, understands that he is different than the rest of the household. And he understands that he looks a whole lot more like the people who are enslaved than he does the people uh, in his princely classes. And so as he grows up, this tension of who he is, being a slave, living as a prince, must begin to wear on him. And one day, he watches one of the Egyptians beating one of the Israelite people, and he snaps. And he actually kills the Egyptian. And he thinks maybe this one slave will be grateful and he'll get away with it. And if he can just hide the body, everything will be fine. And he finds out the next day that that it has made its way through the slave rumor mill and everybody knows. And if everybody in the slaves know, then pretty soon everybody in the palace will know. And he freaks out and he runs. And he runs out into into the desert and he's trying to hide. And he hides there for decades. He starts a family. He becomes a shepherd. He is literally in the middle of nowhere, trying to be nobody in Nowheresville. Until one day, God finds him in an incredible way, because there is a bush that is on fire, but not being consumed by the fire. And Moses hears the voice of God coming out of that bush. And the voice of God tells Moses, hey, I am handpicking you to go back to Egypt and lead the slaves, lead the people of Israel out of Egypt into freedom, into a promised land that I have for them. And Moses doesn't want to do it, and they argue back and forth. Fast forward. Okay, Moses ends up agreeing to do it because God gets his way, sort of how it goes. So Moses is now heading back to Egypt, and he is uh, going to somehow lead these slaves out of there. 
Uh, that is a roller coaster of a story, to say the least. We will sum it up by saying that God, through miracles of pain and death, peels off the hand of Egypt from around the necks of the people of Israel. And Pharaoh eventually, in grief and torment, releases the people to their freedom. And Moses leads, as God had called him to, all of these people out of Egypt and out into the desert until they come to the banks of a body of water and Pharaoh changes his mind and he is tracking them down. And they are stuck between the most powerful army uh, that they know in the world and water that they cannot get across. And yet another miracle occurs. God parts the water and the people of Israel, a nation so big that Egypt was afraid of them, just on size alone, walks across on dry land to the other side. Pharaoh's army pursues them and the water collapses on them and they drown and the people are free. At what point did God give them the law so that they could earn their freedom? He didn't. That actually comes next. <laughs> the late Tim Keller, pastor and author, observed that we typically miss the most obvious part of the Exodus story. That they're saved, and then the law comes. The law, the commands, are actually part of the promise, not part of the salvation. God's saving grace is a gift, not a reward. God's saving grace for the people of Israel was a gift, not a reward. God's saving grace for you and for your neighbor and for your loved ones is a gift, not a reward. So back to our story in Matthew chapter 19. The rich man has walked away sad and the disciples are blown away. So we'll pick it up again in verse 25. The disciples were astounded. Then who in the world can be saved, they asked. Jesus looked at them intently and said, humanly speaking, it is impossible. But with God, everything is possible. Then Peter said to him, we've given up everything to follow you. What will we get? In other words, hey, Jesus, we were kind of hoping for a reward. There's a reward, right? Right? Jesus said, says, uh, yes, but it, it's not going to look like you think it will. Verse 28, Jesus replied, I assure you that when the world is made new and the Son of Man sits upon his glorious throne, you who have been my followers will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has given up houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or property for my sake will receive a hundred times as much in return and will inherit eternal life. But... Many who are the greatest now will be the least important then, and those who seem least important now will be the greatest then. A quick Bible reading note, because I think this is one of the places in our modern Bibles where our modern uh, chapter and verse breakdown, which has helped us memorize scripture and helps keep us on the same page, and that is lovely, but I think it gets in the way of what Matthew actually wrote. 
If you're looking at a Bible, you see that this is the end of chapter 19, what I just read. If you're looking at a paper Bible, you can see that Jesus, uh, chapter 20, verse 1, Jesus is still talking. This is not a new story. It's not a new answer. He is still answering the question that Peter asked. He's now going to answer it with a story. But this is all part of the same answer. Chapter 20. For the kingdom of heaven, Jesus said, is like the landowner who went out early one morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay the normal daily wage and sent them out to work. At nine o'clock in the morning, he was passing through the marketplace and saw some people standing around doing nothing. So he hired them, telling them he would pay them whatever was right at the end of the day. So they went to work in the vineyard. At noon and again at three o'clock, he did the same thing. At five o'clock that afternoon, he was in town again and saw some more people standing around. He asked them, why haven't you been working today? They replied, because no one hired us. The landowner told them, then go out and join the others in my vineyard. That evening, he told the foreman to call the workers in and pay them, beginning with the last workers first. When those hired at five o'clock were paid, each received a full day's wage. When those hired first came to get their, their pay, they assumed they would receive more, but they too were paid a day's wage. When they received their pay, they protested to the owner. Those people worked only one hour, and yet you paid them just as much as you paid us who worked all day in the scorching heat. He answered one of them, friend, I haven't been unfair. Didn't you agree to work all day for the usual wage? Take your money and go. I wanted to pay this last worker the same as you. Is it against the law for me to do what I want with my money? Should you be jealous because I am kind to others? So those who are last now will be first then, and those who are first will be last. A phrase you have maybe heard before, the last will be first and the first will be last. And we think, at least I think, that that means there's a line of people. And there's people at the front of the line, there's people at the back, and that that line is going to get inverted. And so I suppose if you're in the middle, nothing really changes. But if you're last, you get to be first. If you're first, you get to be last. But Jesus isn't actually telling a story about a line of people. This isn't about a line inverted. He's telling a story about a hierarchy flattened where everyone is made equal because grace, remember we're still talking about salvation, grace is the great equalizer. Grace completely removes first and last. All need it and all can receive it. Grace completely removes first and last. This isn't a, a line where some people have advantages and some people have disadvantages now, so then later, the disadvantage will be advantage and the advantage will be disadvantaged and it'll all balance out in eternity. This is everybody gets exactly the same. There is no first and last because they are all equal. Now, most of us, I think, hear this story very much myself included, and we agree with the first workers. That is a completely unfair way to pay people. They worked all day. They should get more than the people who worked an hour. And that is because we are still in the mindset of earning a reward 
rather than receiving a gift. And we want to hold God to this standard of fairness, which if you've ever had kids or worked with kids, you know that the standard of fairness can move a lot depending on how we feel about the situation. And we want to hold God to a standard of being fair. God promises to be a God of justice. All that is wrong will be made right, but God does not promise to be fair. And that's because no true gift is about fairness. Nothing that is truly a gift is about fairness. If you give a gift to somebody that you love, you're not giving it to them because they deserve it. You're giving it to them because you love them. Because if you give your kids a gift because they deserve it, that's not a gift, that's a reward. Right? If you give your spouse a gift because you feel like they have earned it, you're giving them a reward. A gift has nothing to do with earning. A gift is not about fairness. Gifts are given to those we love because we love them. God's gifts of grace and love and faithfulness are given to us because he loves us. The God of Jesus is not Santa Claus, giving gifts to deserving children and coal to the undeserving. This God says, bring all the children to me because I have a gift for all of them, if only they will accept it. The God of Jesus is not the God of Islam who says your life better add up to more good than bad and you better keep track. And then their scriptures tell them that they better hope that on the day they die and face God, that God is in a good mood and he's willing to overlook all the bad that they have done. There is no assurance of grace. There is just a hope for a reward. And the God of Jesus says that eternal life is a gift of his goodness, not a reward for our goodness. The God of Jesus is not the God of the American dream, insisting that those who work harder and achieve more are more worthy of admiration and love. And unfortunately, the God of Jesus is not in the words shouted by too many church leaders and talk show hosts who say, look, world, here are the rules. And if you will follow these rules, we will be comfortable with who you are. And when we are comfortable with who you are, then you can come and receive grace with us. No wonder the world does not want to hear what the church has to say. We are living in a world full of reward systems. And what we keep shouting about is another reward system. Jesus did not send us out with a reward. He gave us a gift of grace and love and said, now go tell other people that that gift is there for them too. Because grace is exactly that. It is an unfair gift paid for by Jesus's death, free for you to receive. And eternal life is just that. It is a gift bought by the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, made available to anyone who recognizes their dependence on the one who made them. 
And then one more important lesson from this story of the field workers. It is never too late for grace. It's never too late for grace. The workers at the end received it too, just as much, not because they earned it, but because the master is generous. It is not too late for you either. Grace is a gift. Stop trying to earn it, the preacher says to himself as much as anybody else. Stop trying to prove to God that you are worthy of his love. Stop telling God that you know what he should do with his love better than he does. Stop trying to prove to yourself and others that you can justify what God has done for you. He never asked you to do that. It is justified by his love, not your behavior. And anyone who is willing to believe that Jesus is Lord, that he's king of all creation, he's the king of the universe. He is the one who as our creator and king should be in charge of our lives because when we put ourselves in charge, we keep messing things up. He's the one who should be Lord. Anyone who will recognize that Jesus is Lord and that God raised him from the dead can receive that gift of grace. Because it is a gift for you. Will you receive that gift with me this morning? Let's pray. Father God, we confess that we sometimes push off your gifts for us because we're more focused on us than on you. We confess that we need your grace. That we have not followed all of those commandments and all those rules and, and humanly speaking, it's impossible. But God, with you, everything is possible. So we come to receive. Not to earn, not to prove anything to you. You know our hearts you know what we need. You know what we need is you and your leadership and your love so that we can share your gifts of grace and love with others. God, I'm so grateful that you went first, that, that you moved in your love toward us even when we were far away from you. Would you move toward each and every one of us again today and remind our hearts of your love and your grace that it's a gift. And it's a gift you gladly, joyfully give. And so we receive it in joy as well. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for checking out our podcast. You can learn more or connect with us online at easthills.org.